Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hello, Johnny. Hello, everyone. All right. So today we're going to discuss book one of Paradise Lost. Whoopee. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, no, I'm excited too. I'm and really enjoyed going through this. Yeah. I just finished reading Plato's Phaedo for No Compromise. That's right. And that was quite a journey, and I'd never read the whole thing. And boy, that is going to provide some really good grist for future No Compromise and Christian Atheist material. Right. And the Phaedo is going to be, the entire thing is going to be posted on YouTube in a playlist. And then slowly it's going to be dropped on the podcast on a weekly basis. So if you want to hear it all at once, you want to go to YouTube. If you want to hear it on a weekly basis, you'll want to go to the podcast. Okay, so this past Monday on The Christian Atheist, you pulled what out of uh, book one of Paradise Lost? Well, we call it Evil Unrepentant because it introduces the main character, Satan. Is that what you talked about on Monday? Yep. So the title of this week's Christian Atheist is Evil Unrepentant. Okay, but today we want to discuss the whole book one. And the more we read it, the more intently, the more amazing it becomes. You know it. Yep, I really, really am am enjoying Paradise Lost. And the second time through, I guess it's more than a second time through for me, but but this this time through is even richer than any of the past ones. Things are jumping out that I never saw before. The larger logical structure is coming into focus. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one of those works that the more you look at it, the more you realize Milton managed to put into it. Right, that's for sure. And and this epic poem can almost hold its own against any fantasy movie today, you know? <laughs> you know it? That's right. Yep. It's really that amazing, especially the way he describes his scenes like it's it's reminiscent of like the Silmarillion or or by Tolkien or, you know, Yeah, Lord you keep of the Lord of the Rings. Right, you keep saying the the Silmarillion and it really is a lot like that because it gives us sort of the structure of the rest of the world around us. Mm -hmm. It lays the foundation, just as the Silmarillion did. Yeah, but it's based on the Bible. Now, I wonder if his blindness allowed him to see more inwardly than Hmm. what most people with vision can see. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he certainly lived, I, I guess being blind in a way forces you to live inside your mind, which Mm -hmm. both you and I know isn't always necessarily a good thing. (laughs) Okay, so book one, how would you sum it up in as few words as possible? Well, I like the idea of evil unrepentant Mm -hmm. because it really does present to us the arch fiend Satan, Lucifer, as the source of all evil in the world. And he makes it clear at various places throughout this book, as we'll hopefully discover today, Mm -hmm. that he is not in the least bit sorry for his rebellion against God. Right, right. Okay, so in book one, Milton begins by invoking the muse. What is that? If someone's following along, listening to you reading it on the podcast or on YouTube, can you explain what does it mean to invoke the muse? Right, so the muses were the Greek inspirers of poetry and music. And that's actually where we get the term music from. Right. Are there eight of them? I think it's nine, but I'm not sure about that. And the muses, I forget whose daughters they were, but they were the inspirers of all the great artistry in the Greek world. And so when you invoke the muse, you are asking for divine inspiration. And that's precisely what Milton does here in the very beginning. Is that what happens in most epics? 
Right. Most Greek epics, and I guess the Roman, I'm not sure about Virgil's Aeneid, I'd have to look at it. Mm -hmm. They invoke some sort of divine guidance, Mm -hmm. inspiration, very much like what the writers of Scripture talked about, you know, God coming down and inspiring them to write. So who would be the muse in this poem? Right, so the muse in this poem is not the Greek goddesses, but rather Milton, as he invokes the muse, makes the veiled allusion that who he's really invoking is the Holy Spirit. Right, right. Okay, so last week we said that, as in all epic poetry, we find ourselves in the middle of things here. Right, in medias race. So we jump right into the middle of things, and the story sort of then develops from almost initial chaos. Okay, so before we get into the opening scene, why don't you read the invocation? Right, so Milton says this, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And so he's setting forth the idea that he's about to do something that's never been done before. What in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support. That to the height of this great argument, I may assert eternal providence. And here's the line that everyone quotes from Milton and justify the ways of God to men. And so this is his purpose in Paradise Lost, to explain God's thoughts to human beings. And that is a mighty big task, right? That's the task of Scripture itself, God explaining to us his ways. And so Milton is taking upon himself, and you can see why he is asking for help in this monumental task of explaining God's thoughts to men. Right, right. So after he invokes the muse at that point, then the scene goes to a lake of fire where Satan is lying next to Beelzebub and it's totally dark. And then Satan breaks what Milton says is the horrid silence. Right. So he introduces Satan. He says the infernal serpent whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge deceived the mother of mankind. And then it presents Satan aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers, that is the other heavenly host, he trusted to have equaled the Most High. And this is actually something familiar to our listeners because it is very much the notion of taking the seat of God. Right. Satan himself is trying to set himself in the position of God. Mm-hmm. And that's right. that pride. And that's your theme right? throughout your Hegel series. And so the fall from heaven. He makes war against the Almighty, and he becomes, as it says, confounded though immortal. But his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him. Right. So it is part of, the, part of the suffering of Satan is to have known the goodness of God and to know that he himself gave it up. And it's not just the flames of hell that torment him but his recognition that all of this, even if he hides it from himself, is his own fault. Right, right. So in the fall, Satan finds himself in hell. And around line 73, he sort of gives us a definition of hell. As far removed from God and light of heaven. And so it is the very absence of God himself that constitutes hell. Yeah, and later he expounds on that. Yes, he does. 
Okay, so Satan begins to talk to Beelzebub, yes. right? And you really get to hear all the, the hatred, the pride, and the rebellion right. at this point in Satan's words. He laments the current state, how far they had fallen, right? And he admits his defeat, but he never regrets his war. Unrepentant, state Satan stands. So he's speaking now to Beelzebub, and he says, Yet not for those nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict. Do I repent or change? In other words, all of these punishments that God inflicted upon us are not going to make me repent or change. Though changed in outward luster, he says, because remember in the Bible, it actually says that he was the son of the morning, the the bright and morning star. And so he was the most beautiful of all the angels. And yet, because he fell, he lost that outward aspect of beauty. Right. That fixed mind and high disdain from sense of injured merit that with the mightiest raised me to contend. And so it was considering himself as more than what he should that caused all of this. He is suffering justly at God's hand. And at one level, he understands that, but he doesn't care. He is utterly unrepentant and in a sense says, I would do it all again. Right. And he's, I mean, he, he claims he's not going to be killed. He will remain Satan. He will keep fighting against what he calls the tyranny of heaven. Right. What though the field be lost? And he knows now that he's lost the field. The battle in heaven went badly. They lost, were thrown out, and found themselves in hell. All is not lost. The unconquerable will. And there you go. And we talked last time about this sort of sympathetic portrait of Satan. Right. The unconquerable will is in one way a very good thing, right? We want the will of human beings to be, in one sense, inconquerable. Mm -hmm. We don't want other human beings to be able to destroy us, to take away our Mm self-understanding and who we are. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that there is a greater than us and that we must submit to that greater. Um, And so the self-will of Satan, he is not renouncing. I was going to say... You want the will controlled, but not broken. Right. And he says the unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate and courage never to submit or yield. And so the virtues, the good virtues that God wants for us can be twisted and made into vices. And that is the the lesson of Satan. Yeah, we've talked about that before. The uh, niceness. Even the virtue of niceness can be twisted and made into a vice. Mm -hmm. And Satan's courage, you cannot help but see it very clearly painted here. His virtue, the power of his will, the strength, the the certainty in his own self-worth. It is something that is God-given at the right and proper level. But when it becomes twisted and it starts to set itself up above reality, truth, goodness, it becomes twisted and evil. And this is the lesson of Aristotelian ethics, mm-hmm. right? If we lose the balance, we lose the goodness. Right. I mean, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. Excellent. Right. Exactly. Dead on. And he says about God, that glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me to bow and sue for grace with suppliant knee and deify his power. That were low indeed. That were an ignominy and shame beneath 
this downfall. So unrepentant, utterly unrepentant of all of the things that he is suffering, he still stands in defiance of God. And you see that all through book one and even book two. Yes. When we get to book two, it's they're unrepentant. Yep. In arms, not worse. He said, look at our situation. We're no worse off now here when we're in hell. In foresight, much advanced. We've learned a lot from our failure in opposing God. And then he says, with hope, we may, with more successful hope, resolve to wage by force or guile eternal war irreconcilable to our grand foe who now triumphs. And in the excess of joy, soul reigning holds the tyranny of heaven. Right. There it is. Right. So it is the unjust power of God. Mm -hmm. It is always, evil always looks to blame goodness for, for everything, for its evil designs. Right. That's right. Okay. So next Beelzebub answers, correct? Right. He admits that God is omnipotent, right? Right. Just like he said he was. He also suggests that God allowed the rebellious angels to live just so that they could suffer forever. That kind of reminds me in a way of atheists who angrily make that accusation against God that the God they say they don't believe in. Right. <laughs> it's like it's filled with a kind of anger that is directed to God when they say it. So they're angry at this non-existent being. Who, who made all of this terrible things. This terrible stuff all around. And... And is allowing us to suffer. Right. It's it's that famous saying, I don't believe in God and I hate him. Right, right, right. right. But like David Smalley kept coming back to, so God, God's the one that allows all these children to die, children to suffer, you know. Okay, so you know what's interesting, John, is how Satan and Beelzebub, they never use the word God, do they? They, the they call him the, right, the foe. They call him the tyrannous king. All of those things. It's, it's like they're, they're not going to recognize him for who he really is, ultimate goodness. But they're only going to recognize him as the cause of all of their woe. Yeah, and I think of in my own life when I'm angry at somebody, like really angry, I can't even use that person's name, you know? <laughs> and, and it's like, what's in a name? It's, a, it's enough to inflame somebody, right. you know? So and they don't use any form of God's name. It does show a level of Milton's understanding of psychology of man, don't you think? Like, cause Milton, without a doubt, is a brilliant psychologist, yeah. like Shakespeare. Right, yeah. Okay, so back to Satan's lament or prideful lament of self-will, huh? I mean, he still looks on himself as too great, right? And too great to suffer these injustices at God's hands. He's always right. the victim. And he sets forth a program to... Beelzebub. He says, fallen cherub, to be weak is miserable, doing or suffering. But of this be sure, to do aught good will never be our task, but ever to do ill our sole delight. Right. And we talked about the inversion, like within Hegel, and this is exactly that inversion. It's like taking evil for good and good for evil, exactly as Isaiah said. Right. I mean, he talks of perverting God's work ever to do ill our soul delight as being the contrary to his high will whom we resist. If then his providence out of our evil seeks to bring forth good, our labor must be to pervert that end. And that perversion is really the essence of evil. Yeah, it's rampant now. And out of good still to find means of evil. And why, he says, 
because it shall grieve him if I fail not, and disturb his inmost counsels from their destined aim. <laughs> How many children have made it their goal to, to grieve their parents? Like, really? Yeah, really. They, they really... Satan says he will never bow. His will will never be broken. He will always oppose God. Right. So at this point, Satan and Beelzebub leave the lake, right? They become unchained and then they leave the lake. So for fans of like a magnificent fantasy movie, Milton does a really wonderful job describing Satan's terrible size and appearance. And his, his wings opening up. And flying away from the lake of fire. But but before he his wings open up, he drags himself out of this liquid fire. You can just you can just imagine that. Yeah, and he paints it pretty well. <laughs> it's a pretty stark and interesting picture. And they glory in their power as they're flying away. And they don't acknowledge that it's from God, but it's that it's their own power. Right. Yeah, in fact, they constantly throughout the entire poem refuse to acknowledge that God is the author of all that is good. So apart from the Bible saying that Satan was the most beautiful angel and had fallen from heaven, we don't really have a description of him once he fell from heaven in the Bible. And on one hand, Milton sort of glorifies him as this giant creature, you know, sort of like Hollywood would glorify him, I guess for literary sake. But in Isaiah fourteen fifteen, we see, I mean, this, this could be, we talked about this before, this could be at a later time. But we see when Satan is finally brought down, it says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? It almost seems to say that when we finally see him, it's going to be like the monster under our bed, you know? That, that this is all, this is this all is it was? It. Yeah, this is it. This is the one that we were trembling at. So when God reduces him, and that's sort of what evil does. It reduces us. It takes us down because God has made us rightfully powerful. I mean, Jesus said, have I not said you are gods, right? God made us to a high state. But when we choose evil over his designs, we reduce ourselves. We don't elevate ourselves as Satan found. And it's not that God reduces us as a punishment. It's that we reduce ourselves by refusing to take the proper position assigned to us in the hierarchy of good that God has created. Okay, so the two of them start talking again. And they lament about how terrible hell is compared to the beauty of heaven. Um, but they do admit that even worse than hell is having to bow to God. And here's where Milton's most famous lines show up, right? In this first book, this is some of the most important and most often quoted lines from Paradise Lost. And we also just pick up with what Satan says. Yeah. He says, is this the region, hell around us? This the soil, the clime? said then the lost archangel, this the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light? And then his response, be it so, unrepentant, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right. In other words, it's just God's power that makes it this way. Farthest from him is best. And as we said before, that is the definition of hell, to be out of God's presence, of ultimate goodness. 
whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals. And so this is the woke agenda that we hear all the time around us. Right. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. By heaven, hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor. One who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. No one's going to change the mind of Satan. He is unrepentant in his rebellion against God. And then he says this, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. And this really is what we've called in the Christian atheists empirical idealism. And it is rampant in Marxism and wokeism. The idea that we can create our own world through our mind, through the force of our will. Right, right. And that's in defiance of the world that God has created. And it never works. (laughs) (laughs) Almost like a child who says, I refuse to be happy no matter what, no matter what you do for me, and then make a good situation a hell for themselves. What matter where, Satan continues, if I be still the same? And this goes to Lewis talking about the nature of hell and eternal punishment. Remember the dwarves in the last battle being in heaven, being fed heavenly fare, and yet having the taste of the stable. Right, right. Right. And so the mind itself, if it has rejected God, as in the Chronicles of Narnia, not even God is able to overcome and bring you goodness when you have rejected it utterly already. Right. And what I should be, all but less than he, whom thunder hath made greater? Again, God is only in his position because of power. Here at least, that is here in hell, at least we shall be free. And there's that self-deceptive notion of freedom that I lived under for 25 years, thinking, oh, at least I'm free. I don't need this God thing. Right. When God creates the world and it is the environment and he created you, then you'll find your freedom most clearly when you submit to his authority. That's for sure. Here, he says, we may reign secure and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. And then this is one of the most famous lines from the whole poem. Better to reign in hell than serve. in heaven yeah and that's the argument also later on in book two one of the arguments right Mm -hmm. okay so what what is it do you think john that satan not in this poem but what do you think in reality he wants i mean always makes me wonder you can say like the traditional good guy bad guy narrative where he wants to rule the world but the bible doesn't indicate that almost as if there's there's something about him that's beyond our human understanding yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. Because, I mean, when we study philosophy, Greek philosophy in particular, they continually make the point that what we choose as human beings is always something good. And I think that's right. Yeah. We want what is good because what is good is what is beneficial. It's what's beautiful. It's what's true. And so goodness is something that we as human beings inevitably pursue. But it almost seems as though Satan wants something different than that yeah Um, well it's like i can get his pride and his unrepentant evil and all that but 
I just can't get his utter evil. Like right. Yeah, the desire not just to get something good, but to actually undermine good itself. And I don't, I don't quite know how to wrap my mind around that. Yeah, like, it is something more than human, I think, like yeah, you said. Yeah, like we have the ability, we're created with the ability to turn from evil, to turn, to repent and return. But I wonder if angels even have that ability. Yeah, that's an interesting once, question. Once they fall, they can't repent. I'm right. not sure. I don't think we can understand that level of evil because we're made in God's image. So we can be good even in our wickedness. I mean, like think of a mafia boss. They'll, they're ready to kill others, but at the same time, they'll tenderly care for their children. Right. I don't see Satan. And love their wives. Right. And I don't see Satan being able to, in reality, tenderly care at the same time while doing evil. It's like he's complete evil right with no goodness no repentance nothing so i wonder if he's not even able to repent yeah milton doesn't quite paint him that way because at various places in the poem there are things that he looks at and he finds himself like regretting having given up heaven Mm -hmm. right but only for a moment right i mean in particular when he looks at adam and eve and he sees the love relationship there he's bowled over by it and then comes back to his mind uh, as satan so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, metaphysically, it's a fa- fascinating question. We're not given a lot of answers in Scripture about right, it. Right, that's for sure. So, okay, it's almost like we can't understand because, like, we can't understand why would a dog return to its vomit. I mean, we can understand scientifically, but we look at it and we just cannot understand that behavior. So we, I guess we can't understand the behavior of Satan. All right, so Satan continues to set forth his plans to Beelzebub. He's going to always resist. Why do you, here's, we're going to get off track again. Why do you think, John, he keeps, in, in reality, why does he continue to resist when he knows there's no way to win? I mean, you can say just to grieve God. Again, that, that is one of those things that I think we just can't quite comprehend. Yeah, I can never understand that after I got saved. Why would he keep going when he knows he's going to lose? He knows it. And yet, you know, there's some of that. Again, we talk about Satan being painted sympathetically. There's some of that in us, too. But, <laughs> I, but we I, were made in God's image, so yeah. that's why we would have hope. You know, uh, you know, you know you're going to die, but you still have this hope that maybe you can overcome it. Satan, angels were not created in the image of God. So do they even have all of that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is one of those fascinating questions of metaphysics that I think the church often frowns on that we talk about and think about. C.S. Lewis did quite a bit of this in his writings. And, you know, I I find them very illuminating and helpful. And I understand they're not divine, you know, writ, but it is fascinating to to think about them. So, okay. So he kind of resigns himself to his lot in life. He looks at the structure and says, it's just force and power that brought you know, that that brought against us. And it's the man. If it was, if I was stronger, I would have. Wait, if I were stronger than I'd be God. That's the idea. Yeah, but yep. that's kind of like Marxist thinking to it's the It's exactly Marxist thinking. Yeah. Okay, so now comes a long passage detailing demons. In fact, there's a lot of long passages in um, Paradise Lost. Which is the nature of epic poetry. Right, and, and it details lots of things. And, and the interesting thing is you see how Milton had like a strong grasp on the biblical structure and on the world. He was like... I mean, it may get boring reading through that, but it, but to read is astounding because yeah. he was like a 
walking encyclopedia. He didn't have Google to refer to. Right. <laughs> the cell towers were not working very well in his time period, yeah. and therefore he couldn't really look these things up. He had to um, master them and kept them in mind. Right. Um, and it is astounding when you read the almost encyclopedic treatment of the scriptural things as well as the geographical. geographical. Right. It's, it's, it is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So... Even if it gets boring at those parts, just listen. If you listen to John reading or if you if you read it yourself, read it with just astonishment. So as for the demons, basically Milton says that these have had their names erased in heaven, right? And they'll be given new names and worshipped as false gods by humans. And what are some of the names of the demons? Well, there's Moloch. Yeah, Moloch. We actually meet some of these characters yeah. later. But he, yeah. he runs through like the full biblical account of all of the gods that were worshipped right. by the, the surrounding tribes that Israel conquered. Right. So yeah, there's this huge long list of all of the, of the gods and goddesses of the world in, in the Greek world. And so yeah, it's yeah. really comprehensive. Yeah, he knows his stuff. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, kind of like numbers, the book of yeah. numbers. Well, as as we look through them, it was amazing to me how much you knew because if you have this amazing grasp of for me, amazing grasp right. of the Old Testament and you it's like I'm reading these names I'm thinking eh, this means nothing to me and you say, "Oh yeah, that was this person there and this that was that this this is just amazing to me that you you know that much about the Old Testament, and it shows how much I've lost over the 25 years as an atheist. <laughs> oh, John. Well, Satan calls all these fallen angels to himself, and they have like a renewed hope because they see how strong Satan looks, right? And it, it creates quite a scene because um, they form their ranks and lift their spears. And he addresses the legions and commits himself to fighting against God right. because everything is God's fault. Kind of, it just kind of reminds you of. I keep coming back to this, but the Lord of the Rings movie when you yep. see all the orcs. Yep. Yeah, that's the, that's the picture I have in my that head. drives everything. It's like everyone looks to God as the foe who is punishing them, and never ever look to themselves as having rebelled against the just authority and the goodness of the Creator. And the angels all reaffirm their defiance, God, and basically having lost in a fair fight, they say, "Now we're going to cheat." The ends justify the means. Right? right, right. So we can recognize as rational creatures, we demons, that God is indeed all-powerful and that probably opposing him will ultimately fail. But we can cheat. We can try to play around the edges and use deception and all the other stratagems of war to find ways of at least poking at the enemy and making him uncomfortable and, and angry mm. to, to get under God's composure which shows a, an amazing lack of understanding even about the nature of God. Mm-hmm. So while addressing the united demons, Satan says this, For who can yet believe, though after loss, that is, we've lost the battle, that all these puissant legions, that is, these, these strong armies that we have here in hell, whose exile hath emptied heaven, shall fail to reascend, self-raised and repossess their native seat. It's like, look at the power that we have around us here. It should be obvious that we can win this war. Of course, they know that they can't, but they hold on to the self-deception right. that they can. And they say it will be self-raised. Their own power will do it. 
and they never recognize that even the power that they have to do evil was ultimately God-given. But he who reigns monarch in heaven, till then as one secure sat on his throne, and then notice what it is that keeps God on his throne, according to Satan, Mm -hmm. upheld by old repute, consent, or custom. So it's just custom. It's just power. These are the arguments that is made over and over again today in the world in which we live, that our power structures in the West are all corrupt, and the only reason they're in place is because tradition and power have kept it so. And what we need to do is overthrow it. Right. And then the utopia will come in. It's satanic. Right. It is a direct reflection of what Milton is talking about here, right? And it's interesting that he can anticipate all of the things. And, of course, it's not really anticipation because it's been it's, just, it's been the argument that's been going on since time immemorial. Right. It's a cycle right. over and over and over But we're again. back to it now. Yep. Right? All of the structure that has been built in the West on the foundation of the Christian worldview is now being taken apart by the same demonic forces that Milton is talking about here mm-hmm. and using the same stratagem. Exactly. And Milton saw it yep. in his own time. And then he says this, and this is always funny to me. So he says, upheld by old repute, consent, or custom, and God's regal state put forth at full, but still his strength concealed, which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall. So (laughs) the whole fall, even our desire to raise up against God, was his fault. It was God's fault. <laughs> it's God's fault we rebelled. <laughs> Our better part remains, he says, to work in close design. Here's that rational structure. This is the thing that the Marxists always talk about, reformulating the world on a rational structure, right? To work in close design by fraud or guile, what force effected not that he no less at length from us may find, who overcomes by force, hath overcome but half his foe. So the end always justifies the means. Mm -hmm. And they will do whatever it takes to achieve their end. That's another theme that repeats itself in the Christian atheist. You talk about that a lot. Right. So the whole idea that the end justifies the means is definitely a demonic idea. Mm -hmm. So Satan says, we may have been defeated in fact. Mm -hmm. We have not been defeated in our mind and we will continue to resist. And then he points to God's chosen vessel for new life, man. So he makes a point now to say, there went a fame in heaven that he, that is God, ere long intended to create and therein plant a generation, whom his choice regard should favor equal to the sons of heaven. And that's man. Right. So he's talking about the creation of humankind here, and that humankind is going to receive a favor that is equal to the angels, right? And actually, we understand from the Bible, is superior to the angels. And Satan then says, look, fellow demons, this is where we should go. He says, thither, if but to pry, right, to get under God's skin, shall be perhaps our first eruption. This maybe should be our first task, to corrupt 
this beautiful race that God is supposedly creating. For this infernal pit shall never hold celestial spirits in bondage. That reminds me of C.S. Lewis. He has a book, Spirits in Bondage, a cycle of lyrics, right? right? And they were written before he became a Christian. Right. So he was profoundly affected by Milton's Paradise Lost in terms of literary structures and all the rest before he became a Christian, but also loved it deeply as a Christian because it is an amazing piece of work. And he took then this Celestial Spirits in Bondage and used it as a title for his book of poetry. Yeah, 1919, that was written. Right, so it was actually like 10 years before his conversion. Right, it was right after World War One, after he got out of World War One. Right, so it was very dark poetry. It was, yeah, and you, um, you're not a big fan of his poems. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I have to say, when I read C.S. Lewis's poetry, I'm left kind of cold, usually. There are some bright moments, but generally I don't think he was a great poet, and I think he came to understand that himself. Yeah, uh, but you never read Spirits in Bondage by him. Yeah. yeah, individual pieces, but not the whole book. Okay, so at this point, the demons start to dig up gold and minerals and build their capital. And when I say capital with an O-L, not A-L, the capital of hell, which then they call pandemonium. And the demons, what, what they change themselves and something smaller, and then they enter pandemonium, right? Well, they yeah, they enter the temple, what essentially is the temple, and they shrink down in size because, I mean, as spirits... They have the capacity to reform themselves, change themselves, become different types of things, which is what we see when Satan enters the serpent. And then they get ready to debate. And this is where book one ends, and the debate is where book two begins. That's correct. Okay, so that ends book one. And if you haven't started reading it yourself, you might be able to squeeze it in through our audio version without commentary. John reads it on YouTube. The entire poem is in a playlist. On the podcast, it's still being dropped, right? Week by week. Yes, but we're pretty far through. Probably by the time we finish with No Compromise, we will have put everything on. Um, And you have those links in the description. And if you're listening to us on YouTube, um, we'd love for you to subscribe. I try to keep our notifications to a minimum. I say that every week. Um, And be sure to listen on Monday to The Christian Atheist, where John's going to begin to look at book two of Paradise Lost. And then on Thursday, you can listen to us go over book two together. So be sure to read it or listen to it ahead of time. Or maybe it might be useful actually to listen to us first and then listen to it. So whatever works best for you. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. Listen to us, break it down, and then then it gives you a background ahead of time. Okay. All right. So um, do you have anything else you want to comment on, John? Nope. I'm just enjoying this very much, going through this with you, my love. Oh, and John, you, um, you're you almost finished with that first ebook. That's right. Yeah, we're almost ready to publish our first ebook, and we'll see how that goes. And what's that going to be called? It will be Through the Looking Glass. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially a recounting the first eight or nine of our Christian Atheist, Christian Atheist episodes. Right. So thank you all for joining us and hope you're having a great week. If you want to buy us a cup of coffee, you can use the link in the description for that too. And then otherwise we'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. 
I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.